We're going to finish Matthew 10 this morning, Lord willing, if He keeps me alive up here. As we always do, we'll read through the text before getting into the sermon and uh, just hearing from God's Word, opening our hearts to His. Matthew 10, starting in verse 34, Jesus said, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his household, his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy. Worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And the one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he's a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. On March 3rd, the year 1836, Lieutenant Colonel William B. Travis sat at a small wooden desk inside the walls of the Alamo. He and his 190 men had sustained five days and five nights of continuous bombardment by the enemy, 2,000 Mexican soldiers. Their fate was sealed. They were going to die. In the face of certain death, Travis was searching for some final inspiration for his men. There are many iterations of this story, but one suggests that William B. Travis took up his sword. He went to the middle of the Alamo courtyard. He drew a line in the sand and he said, those prepared to give their lives for freedom's cause, come over to me, cross the line. I see the Lord Jesus do something very similar in this passage today. In the face of certain death, Jesus draws a line in the sand. He says, those prepared to take up their cross and follow me, cross the line, come over to me. Now, most of us, maybe at some point if we call ourselves Christians, have asked ourselves this question, would I die for Christ? Would I die for Christ? Would I confess Him with my life on the line? Would I still follow Him if it meant losing everyone who's close to me? Would I really give up everything in this life to have Christ 
and the next. Some of you have asked those questions and really searched your heart to see if you would be willing. Others of you, if you'd be honest with yourself, might ask, why in the world would I give up everything here? Why would I give up my life for that guy, for Jesus? Is he really worth it, you might ask? Is he worth it? The Apostle Paul thought so. The Apostle Paul writes to the Philippians and says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Peter thought so too. Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you're grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it's tested by fire, that the testing of your faith or the genuineness may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you agree with these men? Or are you still wondering, is he worth it? Is he worth it? You need to know that Jesus is worth more than anything or anyone this world has to offer. He's worth more, surpassing value. And I want to encourage you today to cross the line for Christ. To cross the line, to stay with Him, as we just sang. And if you do that, you'll not regret it. But to stay without Christ you'll regret that decision for the rest of eternity. So whose side are you on? Are you with Christ? Are you staying with Him in the midst of persecution? Or are you without Him, still wondering if He's worth it? Well, I hope this passage will answer those questions for you as we go through this ending of Christ's commission before the commission. This is the end of His big pep talk to His apostles before He sends them out into a hostile world. So let's walk through it. Point number one in your outline. I hope you picked one up on the way in. I don't have an example up here, but uh, point number one in your outline. Christ draws the line. Christ draws the line. Christ distinguishes the followers that are truly His and the fake ones. Look at uh, verse 34. Look at those first three words. Do not think. Now, Jesus starts with that line because he's about to introduce a thought that is contrary to the prevailing thought of his day. And, and by the way, it's contrary to the prevailing thought in our day. We need to change our thinking. He says, don't think this way. What does he say? In what way are we not to think? He says in verse 34, look down. He says, don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. See, the Jews thought that their Messiah would bring them peace. That is political peace. They were looking for a Messiah that would bring peace, liberty, and justice, not for all, but for them. For Israel. For them and their families. They wanted a Messiah that worked for them, not against them. A Messiah that made their lives comfortable, easy, 
that took care of all the problems out there, that took care of the Roman Empire that was oppressing them. They were looking for a Messiah that would meet their self-interests. Now, this is very similar to the Messiah that America looks for today. American Christianity has adopted a Messiah that works for us, that makes all our problems go away. In a sense, they have this mentality, if you come to Jesus, your life gets easier. It becomes more comfortable. You can, you can keep the American ideal, the American dream. You can stay comfort, comfortable. You can still have your house with a white picket fence and add Jesus. He doesn't challenge any of those things that we idolize. American Christianity doesn't want a hard Jesus that deals with sin and death. They want a soft Jesus that gives you tips for success, positive thoughts for your poor self-image. He keeps your bank accounts full and your home safe. That's the Jesus that the popular American evangelical church is looking for. But Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace. Don't think that I came to make your life easier or comfortable in this world. Our thinking needs to change. He says, I didn't come to bring peace. Look at verse 34. But a sword. What's a sword a metaphor for? For war. I didn't come to bring peace. Peace. I didn't come with a peace treaty. I came to declare war. Wow. So following Jesus is not going to make you richer. It's not going to be safer for you. It's not going to make you more friendly with the world. It's going to set you against them. It'll oppose you to the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of man. The gospel is a declaration of war on the kingdom of man. It is. The gospel does not jive with works-based religion. The gospel doesn't shake hands with political agendas. The gospel does not fit in with the other secular philosophies of the day. The gospel is not compatible with a moralistic, feel-good religion. The gospel is the truth that Jesus Christ came to suffer and die for sin. That He rose again from the dead victorious over sin and death. And He came and said, called, said, you must repent of your sins and believe in Me alone for salvation. The gospel is exclusive. It's the only way for a man to be at peace with God. Now this, the Bible says, is a stumbling block of great offense to this world. It's a stumbling block of great offense to the religious systems. It's a stumbling block of great offense for a mankind that is consumed with self-interests, that are self-motivated, self-preserving. It calls mankind to deny themselves and follow Christ. And that is offensive. Some of you even in this room are taking offense with me now. The gospel sets the followers of Christ in opposition against the world. And the world will therefore hate us. The world will persecute us. The world will deliver us over to death. Because they hate Him. Jesus Christ. 
And by the way, when we think about they, them, the ones on, on the other side of the line, those of this world, the people that stand over there, so to speak, the ones that will hate you, betray you, deliver you over to death, they're not just the people outside of your white picket fence. Who does Jesus say those people are? Look at verse 35. I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Wow. That line, that, cut, that line cuts through the church. Broadly. That, that line could even cut through your own house. Dividing a man and his, his wife, maybe. Dividing a father and his son. A mother and her daughter. This is one of the most painful realities of following Jesus. Painful. Because crossing that line and following Jesus might just put those who are closest to you against you. And those closest to you deliver the most devastating blows to your faith. I was reminded... uh, of a young man that I discipled. He came to one of our youth camps and he was excited, or he came to one of our youth camps, got saved, and he was excited to go home and tell his parents that he became a Christian, that his life had been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And his father's response was this, you can have Jesus out there, but don't you dare bring him in this house. He said that to his teenage son. That young man did not know did not take into account that coming into a relationship with Jesus, he was simultaneously cutting off a relationship with his father. It's tragic. Not all of us will experience that. By God's grace, some of us have grown up in Christian families. We have Christian fathers and mothers who love us and have shared the gospel with us and who have that common union in Christ. We're both across that line. By God's grace, some of you have children who love Christ. And are with you across the line. But some of you out there, you know the pain of this. You know the pain because your father and mother don't know Christ. Or your son and your daughter, they don't know Christ. And you know that that sets them opposed to you. And it hurts. It's painful. Some of you have been told by loved ones, don't come in here and tell me what to do with my life. I, want, I don't want your Jesus talk. Oh, it's painful. I mean, we'd rather... I'd rather take beatings from governors and kings than to watch my family oppose me for the sake of Christ. And I've experienced that. It's heart-wrenching. But Jesus is realistic. He wants to set our expectations in the right place to help us by not thinking like, "Uh uh-oh, when my family betrays me, then it's all over. I'm going to quit this whole discipleship thing. He says, no, no, you need to expect that sometimes your family will disown you, ostracize you, betray you, leave you for my sake. Is it worth the cost? Are you still willing to cross that line for me and follow me? You've got to ask that question.
question. Jesus draws the line in the sand. He, he sets persons against each other. Even persons living in the same house. Following Christ certainly does not lead to an easy, comfortable, and peaceful life. Are you ready to count that cost? So Jesus then, after drawing this line in the sand, he starts to describe who is on which side. You'll see in this passage, as I read through it, there are a a ton of whoever's. The whoever's, let's call them. And he describes people on this side and people on that side. People with him and people against him. And it's helpful for us to distinguish which side are we on. That's point number two in your outline. Which side are you on? Are you with Christ or against him? Because there's no Switzerland. There's no neutral ground here. You're with him or you're against him. Jesus takes his sword and draws a line in the sand. You'll see the characteristics or the, um, the benefit of those who are with Christ. Those who are with Christ in verse 32 are acknowledged by him in heaven. Those who are with Christ are called worthy of him. Verses 37 to 38. And those who are with Christ will receive him and his reward. Verses 40 to 42. But then there are those on the other side. Those who are on the other side against Christ, against us if we're with him, they are denied by Christ in heaven. Verse 33. They are not worthy of him. Verses 37 to 38. And they lose any heavenly reward in preference of an earthly reward, verses 40 to 42. So clearly there are two different parties with two different outcomes. You know, Jesus told us that this would happen and that we would see evidences in people's lives that distinguish them. You remember what he said in Matthew 7? He said, you will know them by their fruits. Good fruit means there's a good root. Bad fruit means there's a bad, bad root. So this, these are, we're looking at evidences of true faith or evidences of false faith. Jesus is not saying, hey, make sure you do these things to secure your salvation. That's not what he's pointing at here. He's showing us evidences of true salvation and false salvation. He's showing us the fruit that they'll manifest in their life. And I see three major categories here of fruit, okay? Let's help you follow along. There are three main fruits that Christ identifies Confession, affection, and action. Confession, affection, and action. Confession, will they acknowledge me before men? Affection, do they love me more than anyone else? Action, will they follow me no matter the cost? Let's walk through those as they cut through our passages here, our passage Number one, confession. For confession, we need to rewind real briefly. We need to go to the first whoever, which is actually in verses 32 and 33. Let me remind you, let's just read it. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Straightforward. Pretty clear. 
explicit. If you confess Christ, He confesses you. If you deny Christ, He denies you. Now, it's pretty easy to confess Christ when there's no threat. For the majority of our lives, even uh, the generations before us, they experience a very uh, non-threatening environment for Christians. But it's easy to confess Christ without a threat. But when it might cost you the business deal, or it might cost you a relationship with your family, or your childhood friends, it might even shut your business down these days. It might cost you your license or get you thrown in prison. That's not unlikely looking forward. Confessing Christ is going to start to cost us something. It's going to. It's the way this world is headed. It's going to become more difficult. The winds are changing. The tide is working against us now. It's no longer pushing us forward. But the world is manifesting more and more an opposition to Christianity and to our values. Will you confess Christ when you're threatened? When it might cost you something? Believers will. True followers of Christ will confess Him no matter the cost. It will be a fruit of their loyalty and their sincere faith to Jesus Christ. So confession. Number two, affection. A true disciple will be known by their premier affection. Look at verse 37. He says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What's the key phrase in that verse? More than me. That is universal, by the way. Not just father or mother, but if you love sports cars more than me, if you love your job more than me, if you love golfing more than me, if you love TV more than me, if you love the comforts in your life more than me, what is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about idols. Idols are people or things that take the place of Christ in preeminence. It's something that you've switched Jesus out for. More of your thoughts, more of your affections, more of your desires go to those things rather than Christ. Christ says, no, no, no. I'm the premier affection. I'm the first love in your life. A true disciple will love me more than these. More than me is the key phrase. Obviously, we're called to love our father and our mother. We're called to love our children by God in His Word. That's good. That's right. The application for today is not to love your kids less <laughs> in the sense of um, like disregarding them, not providing for them, making their life tougher because you're like, hey, I'm not supposed to love you first, so I'm going to take it out on you. That's not... Jesus is saying more than me. Don't we know in American culture, in our society, that children quickly become an idol, don't they? Family, children, 
He comes at uh, kind of like uh, sin that everybody just kind of sweeps under the rug. We don't want to deal with that one because that one touches close to home, no pun intended. In talking about the common idolatry of children in our culture, Alistair Begg writes this. He said, kids are good, but so easily and unnoticeably become a god. It becomes so vitally important that Tommy goes swimming, Sadie has skating, Rochelle does her tutoring, and, you know, maybe they don't have time to go to church. Maybe we don't have time as a family to read the Bible. The Word of God and the people of God, yeah, they're important, but the greatest commitment in our life is the kids. Have you said that before? Have you told your children's that, children that? Sometimes we adopt this American phraseology, family first. Or the greatest commitment in my life I want you to know is my kids. Is that right? Is that biblical? He says, when push comes to shove, we worship the image of the perfect family. And the holy God can fit around that. Ouch. But isn't it true? Touches one of the idols in our lives. Is your love for Christ more than every other love, even the love for your family? Here are some just convicting questions that I ask myself, and I want to ask you to evaluate. Is is my family an idol, or are my children an idol, and do I need to repent of that and surrender back to Christ, His preeminent place in my life? Let me ask you these questions and just rhetorically answer them in 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 your head. Who gets the first fruits of your day? God or your children? Who drives your schedule? God or your children? What's more important to you? Your children's success or their salvation? When a family event conflicts with a worship event, who wins? What would your kids say? Who does mom or dad love the most? Is it each other? Is it them? Or is it Christ? What would your children who are known for their honesty say? Luke records an even more severe word. A more severe word. This very same account, the parallel account. Look at what Luke records. Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. That's even stronger. So in comparison to your love for Christ, the love for everyone else looks at times even like hate. Can you imagine that? It's hard to even imagine. Like, When in my life or when does my love for Christ, when is it so high, so preeminent that my love for everything else looks like hate? It's hard to imagine, but how about this? When your family calls you a bigot because you are against their lifestyle and their choices. What about when they force you to disassociate because you don't approve of their lifestyle and their choices? You have to know that your family will will always interpret your stand with Christ, your disassociation, your fidelity to God's word, they will interpret that as hate. You hate me. Have you heard that from a close friend or a family member that disagrees with your faith? You hate me. 
I've heard those cutting words. And no matter how much you try to convince them, I don't hate you. I love you. And that's why I'm telling you the truth. I hate the sin that you're caught in. I want you to know the truth. I want you to repent from it and turn to Christ. They will always interpret that as, you hate me. Don't they? Will you stand for Christ? Will you stand with Him even when those closest to you think that your fidelity to Him is hatred towards them? Jesus makes it plain. If you love anything or anyone more than me, you're not worthy of me. You're over there. You stand opposed. You're an enemy. So confession determines our our position, or reveals our position, rather. And affection, what we love the most, reveals our position. Thirdly, action. Your actions reveal your position. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 38, He says, Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now that phrase, take up your cross, had crystal clear implications. Crystal clear. In the first century, under the Roman Empire. You know what's interesting? I didn't think about this before. When Jesus said, take up your cross... He hadn't died yet by the cross. We understand the meaning of that phrase because of Jesus. See, his disciples understood the meaning of that phrase because of Rome. Crucifixion was the premier torture and execution tool of the Roman Empire. It implied great suffering and death. And so what did these disciples hear when Jesus said, take up your cross? They hadn't yet seen him go to the cross. They knew Jesus is telling us to be willing to suffer and die. That's what we're in for here. Suffering and death. So following Jesus means simultaneously you are ready to die for him. So again, I ask you the question, are you willing to die for Christ? Again, Luke takes us a a step further in his account, Luke 9. He said, if anyone would come after me, follow me. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So it's not just the thought of, would I be willing to die then? Are you willing to die daily? To, in a sense, take up your cross every day, preparing to die for Christ. It's a daily determination. I have a morning routine. I'm sure you do too. What do you take up first thing in the morning? I know. I take up a coat because it's been cold lately, put on my slippers, and take up a cup of coffee and my Bible and start to read. Every morning, same thing. Man, I wish I would kind of just consciously go, I'm taking up my cross with those things today. Not like, you know, you have a physical cross at the foot of your bed. You pick it up, put it on. Maybe you can take this one home and do that. Just as kind of a mental exercise. Physical too. But it's not so much adding a thing to your life every morning. It's it's an attitude and a mindset that Jesus wants us to have. And this is acquired prayerfully, I believe. 
We prayerfully take up our cross every day. You know, Lord, I'm giving this day to you. It's all yours. Whatever meeting, discussion, event that I have before me, I'm giving it to you. I want to surrender to you my day. And I am willing, if it's your will, to even suffer through it. To die for your sake, if that's the cost, if that's what you lay before me today. I would do so willingly, Lord. I'm taking up my cross. I'm willing to take on all opposition that I face today from coworkers, neighbors, friends, family members, baristas. I'm ready for it. I'm ready for it. For your name's sake, Lord. I'm taking up my cross. Maybe a prayer like that every morning would get us into this mindset of being ready to die for the Lord. Jesus says in verse 39, look down at the text. He says, here's another, whoever, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now that word life is not the typical Greek word for life. It's suke. And suke could also be translated as soul or as self. Kind of this idea of your most, your inner essence of who you are. This is who you really are. You've probably heard from the, the world, the popular expression, you know, I, I'm just trying to find myself. You heard somebody say that? Or I'm just doing a little bit of soul searching. What do they mean when they say that? What they commonly mean is that I'm looking for the thing or the person that will make me happy, that will fulfill my life, that will give it true meaning, true essence. It's very selfish and self-word motivated, isn't it? Jesus says the exact opposite. He says to truly find life, to find fulfillment, to find the gratification that you're looking for, you have to be ready to take self out of it. Don't look inward. Look upward. For the sake of Christ. In fact, ironically, the route to true happiness, hear this, the route to true happiness, to true fulfillment, to true gratification, to life in its Highest essence is to lay yourself down, to deny yourself, to be willing to sacrifice self in the pursuit of someone greater. And who is that? Jesus says, for my sake, for my sake, don't just lose your life to lose your life. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. You'll find what you've been searching for. The fulfillment that you don't have. The gratification that you're looking every other place to find. You're looking in this world. You're looking in things. You're looking in people. You're not going to find it there. You're looking inward. Oh, maybe you need to work on your self-image. No, you need to lay self down. Be willing to give up your very life. And here's that, here's the promise. You'll find life. Life abundant. Life full of joy. Life full of hope. Life full of peace. The treasures that are unseen by the world, but granted to you from heaven. And fulfillment and actualization of that when you see him in glory. A relationship better than every relationship here. Treasure more valuable and far surpassing anything this world can dish out. Better than money. Better than Bitcoin. The Lord Jesus Christ, you would know Him and know and have life eternal and truly. 
That's what you need today, friend. If you're not with Christ, if you haven't yet crossed the line, you wonder, is He worth it? The life you're looking for is only in Him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the door to enter into eternal life. Life abundant is found in Christ. Look nowhere else. Lay yourself down today and follow Him. He's worth it. He's absolutely worth it. Psalm 34, my favorite, my favorite psalm is, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. You looking for that blessedness, that happiness? Look no further than the Lord Jesus Christ. But the cost of having Him is laying this guy down. Laying your own life down. If it comes to that, being willing to do that. So this means actions, actions of daily sacrifice, of self-denial, of surrender. Those will be evident in the life of a true Christ follower. Finally, in verses 40 to 42, Jesus says actions of hospitality and generosity are markers or evidences of a true follower of Christ. He, sends us, he says essentially this, when you assume the risk of the prophet who comes to you with my word, and you host him in your home, then you are simultaneously hosting me, Jesus says. You receive him, you receive me. And so you will have the prophet's reward. Similarly, he says, when you support the righteous person in the midst of unrighteous opposition, you house him, you, you feed him, you, you align with him, then you are simultaneously standing with me, with Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And you'll assume the righteous man's reward. Those who are receptive to Christ will be receptive to his followers, his apostles. He says even, verse 42, even when you meet the most menial needs for the measliest of Christ's disciples, the little ones, you still don't miss out on the great reward of Jesus Christ. Actions of hospitality towards Christ's sent ones to Christ's ministers, to Christ's people, your evidence, your actions of aligning with God's people, it'll be evident in the life of the true Christ follower. And the one who denies the prophet, who aligns not with the righteous one, but the unrighteous, aligns with this world, the one who withholds gifts because you come in the name of Jesus Christ, the ones who, in a sense, circle the wagons, retreat to the wilderness, hide away when the going gets tough, those are the ones that are against Christ. Those are the ones not with Him. Not His disciples, though. His disciples don't circle the wagons. They don't retreat to the wilderness. They don't hide away from the mission when the going gets tough. They keep serving. They keep supporting. They keep living for the mission of Christ in the midst of a hostile world. And they get the reward of having Christ, of knowing Him, and the rewards of heaven. So which side are you on as we close? Are you willing to cross the line for Christ? Will you confess Him? Will He be your first love? Will you lay your life down to follow Him? Before you jump to a quick, yes, hoorah, I'm with Him. Let me ask you some more what I think are piercing questions. 
when you're embarrassed to confess him now to your barber or to your neighbor or to a coworker? What makes you think you'll be ready when your life's on the line? If your family is your idol now, your whole life revolves around the family and the children. They're your first love. They're your primary commitment. What makes you think that you're going to just easily give them up when Christ calls you to do that in the end? When you give this life to the treasures and pleasures of the world, when you're living every day for self, what makes you happy, what you think is fulfilling, what makes you think that Christ will give you the treasures and pleasures of heaven in the next world? It has been said that the character of a man is revealed in the crisis. It's revealed in the crisis, not made in the crisis. Godly character is forged in everyday decisions, everyday habits, everyday words, everyday desires, and everyday actions. Will you deny yourself, take up your cross daily? Daily. Every day is the Lord's. Not for me. Every day is the Lord's. Not because I'm trying to earn His favor. Not because I'm trying to secure my own salvation. God does all that. I'm just expressing my love, my adoration, my thankfulness, my gratitude for a Savior who laid all of that down for me. Amen? Let's pray. God, you are worthy, worthy of our glory, all the praise and the worship of our lives. You've earned it by in love sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins, to make the ultimate sacrifice, so that, and to raise from the dead so that we might have life. Us sinners can be forgiven, cleansed, washed, renewed, born again, and can have new life in Him. You've showed us abundant grace, abundant mercy. And, and then we get it lavished every day. We have little blessings every day. I, I'm just even thinking about you know, the money that comes into our accounts, the, the houses that we live in, the, the family that we do have that isn't yet trying to kill us. <laughs> and and every blessing that we have, we know is a gift from you, God. You've been abundantly gracious. And so for us to even consider, is it worth it to lay our lives down for you? God, forgive us. We know it's worth it. We know. We know to surrender our lives for you, Lord, is just an expression of our love and gratitude for you giving your life for us. Help us to be reminded of the gospel Help us to be reminded of the great reward of knowing you and having you so that when the cost comes, when the threat comes, we'd be willing to forsake those things, to still stay with Jesus. Help us to cross the line, stay with Christ, and to know you and love you and worship you for all of eternity, never regretting.
counting that cost. In Jesus' name, amen.